finally. Uh, so we're three or four hours in front of this potential snowstorm. I don't know if we'll, what we'll get, but um, uh, last a couple of Wednesdays, we've had some issues and Sundays as well. So it's good to uh, get back to uh, at least on track. And so we're going to cover uh, part two. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Judges chapter 6. Uh, we'll actually look at a couple of passages, not just in the sixth chapter. Just hold your place there. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. But uh, open up to Judges chapter 6. And we'll also be looking at some passages in the seventh chapter as well. Actually, mostly in the seventh chapter, but it's open to chapter 6 to start with. Um, Let's open up in prayer. Father, we just pray that you would speak tonight by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for each and every person you brought. Those that are on their way, bring them safely. Uh, Lord, may this be helpful, instructful. Uh, Lord, may we uh, love you more as we see that you desire uh, to have all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our spirit uh, surrendered to you. Thank you for this time this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we looked, uh, well, not last week, but the week before last, we looked at the biblical role of money uh, in our lives, and we looked at the current uh, climate around us in regards to the love of money, uh, the consuming thoughts of money, uh, the stress of money, the misuse of money, uh, the overall ballooning weight of money on people's lives. We also considered the very real issues of our uh, financial systems, not just here in the United States, you could say that about all the world's financial systems, the, the problems that they're all having. Uh, government debt, of course, ours is the biggest in the world, uh, far and away. Uh, the geopolitical turmoil, uh, any of these things that are surrounding us and the impact uh, that they're already having, but they could potentially have exponentially more uh, on everyone's money and in everybody's lives as an extension. As I mentioned, uh, this study, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, let me reiterate, this study is not to cause fear uh, or hand-wringing. It's not to uh, cause guilt uh, and, and you feeling uh, or, or feeling that, uh, that you are being told you're not giving enough or any of those type things, but to encourage us to live with the freedom and peace that God intends related to our handling of money, and trusting the Lord. Did you hear that? Handling of the money and trusting the Lord. So tonight is really about biblical faith as it relates to money. So last week was kind of looking at the biblical definition, what money is, what money isn't, looking at the biblical uh, understanding of money in the, in the uh, role of life and, in, and, all, and really just the current uh, uh, situation in the world around us, but tonight is about biblical faith, and then next week we'll look at freedom, which will be kind of a practical outflow of tonight, you know, how to, how to live and how to really have a lifestyle that's uh, reflected in the scriptures. But tonight, biblical faith as it relates to finances, and uh, if you're taking notes, the title of tonight's part two of our finances, faith, and freedom is faithful stewardship, faithful stewardship. Uh, a quick look at, uh, just by way of review, since it's been two weeks since we were together in the series, a uh, quick review of some of the key aspects that we looked at in part one, uh, and that was our financial foundations from the Word of God. Uh, first, money in the hands of believer. We talked about this. I'll just go through these rather quickly, but just to, by way of review, so we have the table set to what we'll look at tonight. Money in the hands of the believer should, number one, we looked at always be a blessing from God. Money in the hands of believers should always be a blessing from God, uh, meaning that it came into our hands in an honest or God-given fashion. It's okay to receive a birthday gift. It's okay to receive an inheritance. It's okay to work hard for it. It's not okay to steal it. So these are things that money should be a God-given gift. And I think we all understand uh, what things would be from the Lord and what things would be against God. Number two... Money should primarily be a tool, and I say primarily because it is okay. God gives us uh, latitude to do some things that are not necessities. I gave the example of a Starbucks coffee or a piece of pie, right? 
or a new scooter or you know things that you want that, that not, aren't necessarily a need, but primarily it's a tool uh, useful in meeting specific and important needs. So that's primary. Uh, any family, and we wouldn't think much uh, of, a, of a dad uh, who doesn't look into his children's primary needs and instead just buys a bunch of toys for himself but his kids are starving. The Bible has, it says that someone in that condition is worse than an infidel, the scriptures say. So primarily meeting specific needs but not exclusively. Number three, uh, money in the hands of believers should always be held wisely, not emotionally driven. We're not driven by emotions or the flesh. We're driven by the Spirit of God speaking wisdom to us. So we know eh, that's not a good idea. That's, we're not going to do that right now. Number four, money in the hands of a believer always held lightly. Uh, we understand that it can be lost and taken away. Riches can be gone in a moment. It uh, doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how well you've protected your wealth. It really can be gone in a moment. Some people say, well, that's impossible. Yeah, it could. It's happened in world history. Uh, people, uh, when the stock market crashed, Back in the uh, Depression, they would be the first to tell you. So hold it lightly. Number five, be held with the acknowledgement that it all belongs to God. So the believer understands all these things belong to God. And so we'll look at some things that will be repetitive, not just tonight, but even throughout the next three weeks. We also looked uh, at a short list of things that money can never bring. Now, money can never bring salvation was number one. Can't buy salvation uh, all other religions are empty. You can't earn it, buy it, acquire anything but the free gift of Jesus Christ. Number two, uh, money can't buy security. Can't buy security. Look at First Timothy six seventeen. Number three, money can't buy happiness. Psalm thirty seven four is a good example of this. Uh, number four, money can't buy a free pass from consequences. Consequences will come. Money cannot buy your way out of it, uh, not from the Lord. You can buy your way temporarily out of it, obviously. Uh, you know, in the world system, you know, you'll see people buy their way out of consequences, but not from God. Number five, peace of mind. Money cannot buy a peace of mind. Isaiah 26.3, we looked at that. You'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. Uh, that has nothing to do with money. Number six, health. Uh, you, can, you can have all the money in the world and still have a health-related issue that money cannot solve. Uh, remember, Jesus healed a woman, uh, had an issue of blood for 12 years. She'd spent all of her money trying to get that issue resolved. She never could. He healed her instantaneously. So money can't buy you health. Number seven, money cannot buy love. It certainly can't buy a love relationship with the Lord, but it can't buy a love relationship with anybody else either. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save, he'll rejoice over you with gladness, he'll quiet you with his love. So those seven things we looked at, things that money can't buy, and uh, we also lastly looked at uh, when we were together last time as believers, where do we want to grow? Where do we want to grow as believers? Well, number one, we want to grow in contentment and in faith in God as our provider. We looked at Hebrews 13.5. So we want to grow in contentment. Uh, Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contented people are hard to find, but we want to become, we want to mature and be contented people. Number two, we want to grow in our handling and managing of money. Uh, I referenced the quote from Hudson Taylor, small things are small things, but faithfulness with a small thing is a big thing. God wants us to uh, take whatever he's given us now and be faithful in that, and he'll grow the responsibility. We want to be Faithful and being able to teach that to our kids because someday they're going to have to handle uh, f finances and money uh, as they become adults. Number three, we want to grow in giving for the sake of the gospel. I mean, the, the main uh, reason that we are here on earth is to reach other people for Christ. Otherwise, Jesus would take us all out of here, but we're here for a reason. That's to reach people, and the reality is to reach people requires funding. Now, God didn't have to do it that way, but he's chosen to do it that way. We talked about how many times in the New Testament alone uh, Jesus speaks of money, and it's quite significant. Number four, we want to grow in saving, and we, we certainly want to be uh, people that uh, you know, are able to save resources, so someday uh, when there are needs, we're able to meet those needs. And so uh, scripturally, there's good mandates uh, to 
to save, to prepare, to plan. Those are important things. Not in a miserly way, but also uh, having an eye on that some amount of not spending more than we're bringing in allows us to meet needs and to help uh, when needs arise. Number five, uh, we want to grow in generosity. Uh, Proverbs 22.9, he who has a generous eye will be blessed. So these are the things that we looked at last time. And so as we go into tonight's uh, part two, we're focused on faith. Romans 14.23 says, for, with, for whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty heavy statement, isn't it? Think of how many things we do sometimes in a day that are not from faith. Aren't you glad you're covered by grace? We've actually sinned more than we realize. Far more in a day. We say, I can't remember sinning today. Trust me, you have. <laughs> so have I. I'm not saying... The, the fact is, everything not done from faith is sin. So, wow. That's why we pray for those things. The Psalms even say pray for those secret faults, the things we're not even aware we did wrong. And yet we still did. Thankful that I'm covered by grace because you could never... Uh, you could never live a perfect lifestyle. But we want to press to the mark of the high calling the Lord has called us to. Hebrews 10.38 says, Now the just shall live by faith. Many Christians still are not living by faith. They walk completely by sight. What that doesn't say, Hebrews 10.38, Now the just shall live by faith. What it doesn't say is, it doesn't say, Now the just shall live by what's in the checking account. Now, the just shall live by what's in the bank account. The just shall live by what's in their 401k. The just shall live by what's in their stock account. The just shall live by their career. The just shall live by Social Security. The just shall live by government program. The just shall live by potential inheritance. The just shall live by what's under the mattress. The verse doesn't say that, does it? It says the just will live by faith. It's It's easier to say than it is to do, isn't it? But it's still what we're called to do, and it's still what we're called uh, to grow in. Sorry, I lost my passage here for a second. Give me one. There we go. So those things, even those other things that I mentioned, your checking account, your bank account, what's under the mattress, you know, whatever it is, uh, some antique that you have that if you had to sell it, those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. Those things aren't sins in and of themselves. But if our trust is in those things, we're no longer walking by faith. We're walking by sight, aren't we? And we're not trusting God. It's another one of those biblical or spiritual paradoxes. The Lord, He does want us, as, as we looked at last week, He does want us to be wise, to be prudent, to properly plan and how we use money, especially since it's God that's given it to us. And yet, even though we're to be wise with it, we're to be prudent with it, we're to be, you know, conscientious of how we're using the resources God's given us, we're not to put any specific trust in it. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? I'm supposed to do a good job with this, but not have any trust in it. I'll give you a perfect parallel to this. You live it every day. Your health. Are you supposed to take care of your health? To the best of your ability, yeah. I mean, that's why, that's why when people get saved, we tell them, stop using drugs. It'll kill you really early, kill you really young. You'll destroy your mind. You won't be able to take care of your kids. You won't be able to think clearly. The Bible tells us we're to be sober-minded. But that would, that would go with anything. We're not allowed to just sit there and eat 8,000 calories a day. I mean, people do, but it's horrible for you, isn't it? We, we need to have some amount of exercise. And, and so we take care of our health, and we want to be good stewards of our health. But can we really put any trust in it? We have no idea if an aneurysm is growing in our, in our mind at that very moment. And even if you ate perfectly, you couldn't stop it. I remember when I was in high school, a Pistol Pete Maravich died. He was in fantastic shape. He ate veggie burgers before anyone was eating veggie burgers. He was in great shape, died of a massive heart attack. So you can't put your trust in your health, even though we are, you know, we're wanting to be good stewards of our health. 
but you couldn't put any trust in it. And you can't with your finances either. We maintain it by faith, just like we maintain this temple of God that we talked about on Sunday, the physical temple as well as the spiritual temple. We maintain it by faith simply to glorify God. We maintain stewardship of what God's given us financially to glorify God as well. Every breath is a gift. Every penny is a gift. These things all come from the Lord. Proper stewardship of money is a work of the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we could never have biblical stewardship. So an unsaved person could be good with money as far as acquiring money, but that doesn't make them a steward of God's resources because they're not one of God's children anyway. They're just acquiring things, and Jesus uh, could say to that person, if they died in their sins, you fool, which we'll actually see in Luke chapter 12, we'll actually see that passage, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. So we that are saved, we can have proper stewardship because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Bondage or preoccupation with money, preoccupation with money, bondage to it, is a work of the flesh. Remember back from part one, we looked at this, that wandering away from God in regards to money is manifested in worrying about money, Wasting money, or worshiping money, or all three, right? Worrying about it, wasting it. Again, buying, um, buying a 12-pack is a real waste of money. It really is. I mean, it's a waste for anyone. Who needs 12, 12, 12 ounces of, of, of just liquid I mean, does anyone sit there and buy, and buy a 12-pack of water and just start downing a 12-pack of water? No. It's just wasteful, not to mention all the other things that it does to you. But wasting it, worrying about it, worshiping it, people have these same issues around the world with money. But if we put our trust in the Lord and we take him at his word and we follow his word, we'll become faithful stewards of all that God's given us. And as we talked about at the outset, everyone can grow in this. The guy standing here and everyone out here. Everyone can grow in being a better faithful steward. The goal is that we would be better stewards at the end of 2015 than we were back in 2014. And in 2016, we're better stewards than we were in 2015. In 2017, we're better stewards then because we're growing and maturing. As you grow older, you don't do some of the dumb things you used to do. Hopefully, my daughters asked me that because I, you know, I've had I've had neck, back, and so, and they asked me literally the other day driving the car. They said, "Dad, you did some crazy things playing sports when young. Would you do any of them differently now?" I said, "Oh yeah, I'd do a number of them differently. I wouldn't do all of them differently, but I would do a number of them differently. And I hope this we would say the same as it regards to trusting the Lord as opposed to trusting in money. Let's start by looking at a passage. You got Judges chapter six open." We'll look at a familiar story in the scriptures, maybe a familiar passage to you, but probably not, you probably haven't thought of it from a financial perspective, but we'll take a look at it from that angle. Uh, Judges chapter 6, let's look at verses 15 and 16. God comes to this not-so-mighty man named Gideon. He does not see himself at all as leading any kind of army. He's just threshing wheat. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord turned to him. Lord, we're skipping over a lot. But the Lord comes to Gideon. He says, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he, Gideon, said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan, or my fam, is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. He's like, Lord, we're the dregs of the families. We are not military might or anything. We, we've got none of the skills required to do this thing. All right, so the Lord tells him, you're going to go and you're going to accomplish this huge victory on Israel's behalf. Now look, look at chapter 7, turn over. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. 
verses 2 and 3. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. So Gideon finally, you know, he does all these things where he puts a fleece out to make sure he's hearing from God. Is this really from God? Is it, is this, does God really want me to do this? This is the way people are with their money. Does God really want me to give? Does he really want me to do this? And they keep fleecing, and he does all these things. Finally, he realizes that God really is sending him, and he gathers an army, the people who are with you. But he gathers this group, uh, and he says, the people who are with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me and say, my own hand has saved me. Therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And immediately, uh, and 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Drop down to verse 8. So the people took provision, their trumpets in their hands, and he sent all the rest uh, sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. 300 men. Starting there at uh, 32,000 plus, now down to 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below in the valley. Move over to verse 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. They had way more than 32,000. They had thousands of thousands, far more than 300. And their camels were without number at the sand by the seashore. So when they, this, they came over and they looked across the valley, the Valley of Jezreel, which is also where the, the final battle in World War III or whatever the final battle will be, uh, that will be taking place in that massive valley, we showed, uh, we showed it to you uh, a few Wednesdays ago in Megiddo there, and it was as far as the eye could see of Midianites and armies from the east. On the, uh, they, they came from the east side of the Jordan River, and he had only 300 men down from 32,000 to these 300. Look at verse uh, 21. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Now, the rest of the story is that you know Gideon goes on to capture, slaughter, defeat. Uh, and when the Midianite army lost, they turned on themselves primarily. They had the torches in the pitcher, and they smashed the pitcher, and, and they shout, and then all these Midianites kill themselves and run and flee. And so 300 put thousands to flight, thousands. And all the money and all the resources and all the horses and all the weaponry and all the things that the world and Midian had was no match for God taking 300 and putting all of it to flight. Victory in the Christian life and in our finances is not, is not, based, is not based on the amount of resources we have. Now, first of all, you have to believe that statement. You have to settle it in your heart and say, Lord, I believe that's true. Even if you've never experienced that truth, say, Lord, I believe it. Victory in life, in the Christian life, and in our finances is not based on the amount of resources we have. It's based on our obedience to God, based on our obedience to God with the resources he's given and his blessing on those resources and causing them to multiply in ways beyond our vision and beyond our understanding. Does that make sense? It's not based, uh, many times in the Christian life, as I grew in my walk with the Lord, the math didn't add up. Sometimes with this church I say, the math doesn't add up. And yet the Lord would tell Gideon, as Gideon would have said the same thing, he would say, this doesn't add up. Lord, this is ludicrous. We were stretching it with 32,000. 300? Have you seen? They're like locusts. They have all the resources, all the weaponry, all the everything. And God's like, I know, but you'd get the glory. So you do it my way, and I'll make your 300 mushroom into something far beyond your imaginations. So I want to look at... Uh, I, 
I've put some slides together so you don't have to remember all these things. You can actually write them down as we go. And so first we want to look at five lessons, five lessons from Gideon. Not exactly, most people don't think about Gideon as a financial like, um, picture in Scripture. But really what finances are, they're just resources. Horses, men, spears, weapons, tanks, they're resources. They cost money to buy, they cost a lot of money to make, cost a lot of money to pay General Dynamics and such to build them. And so they're resources. But five lessons from Gideon in managing the resources that God has given us. Number one... I love number one. This is great for all of us. Do not live in the past. And I, in my own notes here, I have don't live in the past. Don't live in past mistakes. Don't live in past failures. And a lack of faith that you had, well, two minutes ago. Or five years ago. Five days ago. Don't live in past mistakes, past failures, or a former lack of faith. Why do we know this from Gideon? Well, Gideon, no doubt, saw plenty of past failures in himself and in his tribe and in his fam or family, right? He said, my clan is the least capable. Do you know how many mistakes me and my family have made? We're not capable of this. But God comes with a new day and fresh promises all the time, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Doesn't matter what we did or didn't do in the past. People, you know, you can wring your hands forever. Like, I wish we would have been wiser and we wouldn't have done this. And why did we take that vacation three years ago? We could so use that now. You can say that forever. And by the way, Abraham, he didn't always exercise great faith, did he? No. But he was always moving forward in faith, the Bible says. He made mistakes. He made some big ones. He twice lied. Well, he told half-truths, which are lies, about his wife, Sarah. But he grew and took new steps of faith. And I would ask and remind all of us that this series can be a fresh start for everyone. New steps of faith, not living in the past. Number two, it doesn't matter if other people are doing a better job than you. There's always someone doing a better job than us. Always. And yet God still chooses us. Isn't that interesting? Gideon had to have said, Lord, I can show you way better candidates than me. Moses felt that way. God said, I know. That's why I'm not choosing them. I'm choosing someone who doesn't see any potential of doing this job. And that's why I'm choosing you doesn't matter if other people are doing it better. God still wants to use us. Number three, financial resources, just like gifts and talents, that you have are substantial. Regardless of the amount, if they're yielded to the Lord, if they're yielded to the Lord. Uh, Gideon, 300 men. Jesus had encounters a situation where we believe, I know it says the feeding of the 5,000, but we believe the real number with women and children is closer to 15,000 or even higher. And there's a boy there with five loaves of bread, two fish. That is not going to get the job done, is it? But God, right? That's not going to get the job done unless God's involved. And then, not only did it feed the 15,000, there was also a lot left over, right? Twelve baskets full and overflow. I really believe that God can give an overflow to your family, to this church, if we're not asking a miss to spend it on our own pleasures. Because we would have a desire to do God's work. We'll get to those things, too. Number four, small steps of faithfulness are the start. Small steps of faithfulness. Gideon didn't immediately see this big victory. We, we skipped over some other things, but he had some fleece moments. He even had some smaller victories. In between uh, chapter 6, verses 
15 we were looking at when we got to where he won that huge battle. He had some smaller victories, some fleece moments where he, his faith was strengthened a little bit. And God wants you to take smaller steps where your faith gets strengthened. It's hard to go on to bigger steps of faith if we won't take the small ones first. He who's faithful little will be faithful in much. Luke 19.7, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with very little. You'll have authority now over ten cities. It's true in every aspect of our Christian life. Money is not excluded. It's, it's right there with everything else. Mark 4.25, whoever has, to him more will be given. We're going to be faithful to the things that God's given us. Number five, isn't this great? Gideon was great proof of this. Others will benefit by our obedience and stewardship. Isn't that good to know? Others will benefit. In Gideon's case, Israel benefited. But in our case, your kids will benefit. The body of Christ will benefit. Your spouse will benefit. The church will benefit. Unsaved people will benefit when we learn these same lessons. So five lessons from Gideon and managing the resources. Now let's take a look at four biblical principles for financial stewardship. Four biblical principles. Yep. This quote from Billy Graham, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in life. Because if our, money, our attitude's wrong towards money, we're going to be worshiping something other than the Lord. These are four biblical principles of uh, faithful financial stewards. Number one, let's love God and reject the love and preoccupation with money. G.K. Chesterton, if you ever listen to Robbie Zacharias, he loves to quote Chesterton. But um, G.K. Chesterton, said, he said this, to be clever enough to get all that money, one must be stupid enough to want it. There's a lot of people that crave getting more, acquiring more, attaining more. I know many in, in, the, in the body of Christ, that's not their issue. They just want to pay the bills. I, w- w- the Bible speaks to both groups, don't worry, and everyone in between too. But many people are preoccupied, and they love money. And 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not every evil comes from love money, but a lot of them. Matter of fact, a huge percentage probably. Uh, Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some, and listen to this, have strayed from the faith. They used to walk by faith. They've strayed from the faith in their greediness and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Many of them have left the body of Christ. They no longer, you know, this is so tragic where people, I've seen it in my life, where people that used to have a love and a passion for the Lord, God blessed them financially, and now they don't even want anything to do with the Lord. Now, the same one that gave them it could take it away, and the same one that keeps their heart beating could stop it from beating. But he's graciously, some of these folks are still with us, and I hope that they come back to the Lord. I've seen it. We lived in Florida. We lived in North Carolina. We lived in Virginia. It doesn't matter what state you live in. People can gravitate away from the Lord and have a love and a preoccupation with money. Now, I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about working hard. Hear me on this. Christian men and women should be the hardest working, most diligent, most dependable people in the workplace. I spent the vast majority of, well, up until two years ago, I still had a job in the secular world. So the first 44 years of my life, I wasn't really doing much in the workplace at the age of six and things like that, but you get the idea. But a good portion of my life was in the secular workplace, and Christians should have a good testimony of the best work ethic, but not money-motivated. We have the best work ethic. We have the hardest, uh, you know, we, we really care. We do our best work. We don't cut corners. I love this quote from Greg Johnson. He's a pastor and author up in New York. He said, People who never do any more than what they are paid for never get paid more. People 
that never do any more than what they are paid for never get paid more. That shouldn't be. So on the one hand, we're not to love and adore and be preoccupied with money, but if we're the people that do the least amount and cut every corner and just do, well, I just, I'm not, I, I get off at five. The clock says five. I'm done. I punch out, whatever it is you do, then that's a bad testimony. That's problematic as well. But number one, love God and reject the love and preoccupation with money. Number two, everything belongs to God. Do we believe that? Do we really believe everything belongs to him? Whatever we have is a gift of his grace. In Haggai 2.8, it says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine says the Lord. You know everything in Wall Street belongs to God? Do you know the CEOs of the Fortune 500 think it belongs to them and it doesn't? Goldman Sachs, Lloyd's of London, all of these places, it all belongs to the Lord. The gold belongs to God. The silver belongs to God. He says in Psalm 50.10, for every beast of the forest is mine. All you hunters that think them deer belong to you, they don't. You get the, God gives you some of them. You can make your venison chili like someone made a couple years ago or whatever. But every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, God said it all belongs to him. Now, if the, if the material world around us all belongs to God, certainly everything that the believer has belongs to the Lord. Spurgeon said this, he said, it's a strange infatuation that we who have borrowed everything good from our Savior should think of exalting ourselves. But that's really what man does. It belongs to me so I can be puffed up and prideful about it. He pulls up to you at the light with a convertible Ferrari. Check me out. Look what I've accomplished in life. What are you driving? But you know what? If that guy pulls up to the Apostle Paul, check back in 100 years. Amen? Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Number three, our first fruits belong to God. Uh Uh-oh, this is where it gets personal. Exodus 23, 19, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Genesis, um, turn real quick uh, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, look at verse 4 for yourself. Our first fruits belong to God. Look at verse 4. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Look at the second half of the verse. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. To be clear, that passage in Genesis 4.4, to be clear, the Lord required a blood sacrifice, which foreshadows the sacrifice of the lamb. Remember, remember, Cain didn't give a blood sacrifice. He did give an offering, but he didn't give a blood sacrifice. And it does, without any doubt at all, it foreshadows the sacrificial lamb of God that would be Jesus Christ later to come. But this is also a representative passage of giving back to God a portion of what God has graciously given. Think about it in these terms. Abel knows this. Abel was righteous. Abel ends up being a martyr. He's killed by his own brother. He goes on to heaven. But while Abel was still alive, Abel knows that his entire flock, says Abel was a keeper of sheep, his entire flock, his own health, his own ability to manage the flock, the grass to feed the flock, the streams that hydrate him and the flock, he knows they're all gifts from God. We can forget that, can't we? We can easily forget that anything we have is actually a gift from the Lord. Because we, we, we come to a place where we think we deserve the box that is now around us. God's like, where did you get that idea? And, and, and especially when you look at our brothers and sisters around the world, you really should have a hard time having that 
mindset, we should more and more say, wow, we're just really blessed. But Abel knew that everything he had. So Abel understood that God could rightly ask for half of the flock, three-quarters of the flock, the entire flock, but he doesn't. Just give me the first fruits. He doesn't ask for the whole flock. Abraham, ten chapters later in chapter 14, many of you probably know that passage, he ends up giving a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem, which many would believe, and I believe is another Christophany, Jesus himself appearing on the scene to receive that gift from Abraham. Now, understand that Abraham gives that well before the law was given to Moses. Moses isn't even born for 400 plus years later. So before the law, well before the law, you have Abel giving a first fruit gift. You have Abraham giving a first fruit gift. Israel later, under the law, will be, will be required to tithe. And the tithe in ancient Israel was essentially um, a religious tax system because they had a theocracy. In other words, God was the ruler of ancient uh, Israel, cloud, uh, the cloud by day, the fire by night. Uh, even though Moses was the spokesperson, they had the literal presence of God. And so they had uh, the Levitical priesthood that God put in place at 10% uh, annually of their crops and livestock went to the Levitical tithe. That's found in Numbers chapter 18, 21 through 32. Then they had the festive tithe, which was also crops and livestock. That was for the Israel's festivals and the congregational worship as they would gather. That was another 10%. And then they had 10% that they gave every three years for those who were poor. Israel was required every three years to give 10%, and that was just of their... That, was not, uh, that one was, uh, was not livestock. That was just uh, agriculture. But they would give that every three years, uh, and that was for Levites, widows, orphans, and foreigners and strangers in the land. Why? Because God said, you were strangers in the land, so you'll have a heart for those that are downtrodden. And every three years, everyone had to give that sacrificial gift for those that were poor. And that worked out to, if you take that 10% every three years, that's 33 divided over three years, so you end up with what was, in, is, is, uh, in ancient Israel, a tithe of 23.3% per year. Now, tithe means tenth, because they had a tenth, and they had another tenth, and they had another tenth. But when you look at the totality of Scripture, um, tithing in the Bible, uh, I don't believe uh, in the New Covenant, it is a, I don't believe it's a mandate I believe it's a strong principle. Does that make sense? A mandate, uh, you must be saved. A mandate is after you're saved, you must be baptized. Right? These are mandates. Anyone comes to Christ, go into all the world, baptizing them. So these things will follow. And uh, in prayer life, mandate that we, we are to be people of prayer. These are mandates. Now, uh, the fact of the matter is, because we see uh, Abraham and Abel well before. In the New Testament, there's no mandate to tithe, but there's no eradication or anything said against it either. Uh, although, although Jesus, as we saw, uh, actually upholds it uh, when he's speaking uh, to the religious leaders. He said, you tithe mint and cumin and rue and all these things. These things you ought to have done. He said, yeah, you, you should be doing them. Now, of course, he's still under the law at that time. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't been raised from the dead. The new, uh, the new commandment, though, under the new covenant, uh, we see Jesus um, mandate that's for the rich young ruler. He goes, sell everything. <laughs> give, it, give every single penny of it. Leave all, forsake all and follow me. He says this uh, uh, at other times as well. But Israel... They had been given so much, God had taken them out of bondage, and they later would forget God, and they would decide that we're not giving our first fruits anymore. And that's why we have Malachi 3, will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes 
and offerings. But the Lord would say in the same chapter, but try me now and see if I will not pour out a blessing. And I believe in, uh, in the biblical principle of first fruit giving, and that's why I've tied it, I don't, I don't call it New Testament tithing, although I believe it's a good starting point, uh, and it's not always a good starting point for people that can't be there, but you want to, it's something to grow towards because God has put it in there, and the scriptures are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the blessing of God is promised to those that follow the ways of God. And so the principle of first fruit giving that we see in right there at the beginning, the very first family, the first little church, is Abel. Abraham, the father of faith, we see him as a first fruit giver. Then Moses under the law, first fruit giver. Then the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit falls. They don't just tie, they start giving everything. Why? Because they weren't bound, they, they didn't even need the law of tithing because they had such cheerful giving flowing from their hearts. And so the, the law of Christ takes us even above that, that first fruit giving becomes the Holy Spirit-driven norm of the, body, of the body of Christ, the believer that's walking in the Lord. Now look at, look at the fourth thing, just because we're up against time. Number four, giving reflects God's nature. Giving reflects God's nature. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's his nature. Every football game, there it is. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. Luke 6.38, now this is Jesus speaking. This is either true or it's not true. Give and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we put in your bosom for the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. I'm going to give God, if there's a penny left, he's getting that. God's like, I'll give you back. The same measure, that's what Jesus said. And I believe Jesus means exactly what he says. Again, these are things of faith. These are, these are not, the unsaved person is, is probably going, no, I don't like that. But when they realize, like Abel did, that the grass came from God, the streams came from God, the rain came from God, the blue skies came from God, the sheep themselves. Did you know there's times where God stopped the animals from being able to reproduce, just to make the point? Laban found this out, you know, that uh, God could actually say that these things Jacob's were proliferating. Remember Jacob, all, all his, he just kept having sheep after sheep and all these livestock. God can do it. Let's look at two more things. We'll come to a close. I went past it. Four characteristics of the born again living, a born again believer of those born again living and giving by faith. Four things, four characteristics. These are things that God wants us to exhibit as believers, number one, the selfless giver. And you can look up these passages on your own, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 through 7. The selfless giver. I love when I meet people that are just selfless givers. And I, I, I know over my lifetime I've met a number of Christians that just have such a selfless giving heart. Uh, I learn a lot from them. I want to be more like them. I've grown to be more like them over time, but, but again, you meet mature saints in the Lord that just are selfless givers, and there's no greater example than Jesus himself, right? He gave his body, he gave his blood. It was worth more than him actually giving the gold of heaven because the gold of heaven wouldn't save us. He had to give something even more precious than the gold of heaven's streets. Number two, the joyful giver. See, being a cheerful giver is the goal. You don't see Abel bummed out about giving his first fruit gift. Cain is really not happy about the whole giving day, is he? Here it is. Take it. Uh, that's actually not what I wanted anyway. Now he's even more mad. I gave... This is some person that's that, that just... Living by religion. 
I wrote God a check, and I did not see an ROI on it within a year. I'm done. As if, as if that is going to somehow burn God. Joyful giving. Shall each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, not of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So the joyful, number three, the regular or the consistent giver. It's found in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Consistent. It becomes a pattern of our life. Just like eating, sleeping, sharing the gospel, praying, reading our Bible, being kind to people, being forgiving, it becomes a pattern of our life. Forgiving and giving. Those of you who are married, think of these, all, each of these four characteristics, how good your marriage can be if these are the things you have towards each other. Selfless. Joyful. Consistent. And then the fourth one, sharing and hospitable. The sharing and hospitable, we go to Romans twelve thirteen. You know, I don't have time to go through each of these verses, but you can look them up. Four characteristics. I don't know about you, I want those things to be, I want people to be able to see those in my life, and I would hope that you want people to see them, but mainly that God would see them in us and growing in us. And lastly, again, these are all understanding why we're to be good stewards by faith. And the last one is why, why do we give? If I had to put an answer beside it, it would be because it's God's priorities. Why do we give? God's priorities. When I got saved, my priorities died and God's came alive. If it was my priorities, I would have never left the business world. I like doing that stuff. You know? The checks are bigger too. And... There's all kinds of other perks. But every year, from the time I got saved in 1995, the Lord's like, each year you learn that life is about my priorities, not yours. Now, the good news is, when you follow God's priorities, you actually have more peace, more joy than all the other things when you try and create these things. Like we already said, money can't buy health, happiness, peace. People are convinced that it can and it doesn't matter how many Robin Williams they see, or they, they still don't believe it. They still believe, well, that was an oddity. Elvis was an oddity. Marilyn Monroe was an oddity. All these things, it's just the Rolling Stones didn't really mean to write, they can't get no satisfaction. Right? Those things are just anomalies, but when you see them happen again and again and again and again, and they're addicted to drugs, and the 12th trip to the Betty Ford Clinic, I'm talking about Hollywood here, and all these things, and you realize that and the people you work with, they had it all, and why are they now getting divorced? I can't tell you how many times when I was in the business world, people that I knew that I thought had a good marriage four or five years later, phew, and people, in, in really dumb mistakes, like, I'm like, what are y'all doing now? Well, we have to sell the house, and now we're in you know, probate court or whatever it is, and they're dividing up this and all this stuff, and I'm like, there is another way. Well, why do we give? God's priorities. Number one, we give because it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. What did Abel give that gift for? The first fruit gift was worship to the Lord. It was acknowledging, Abel's like, I have nothing unless you are here to help me. I am nothing. But God's worthy. How, Jesus said when you pray, start off what? what? Hallowed be your name. We start off, everything starts with worship. We give because it's an act of worship. Number two, we give out of gratitude. Gratitude. And we have to remind ourselves of these things. Sometimes we don't feel like giving. We don't feel like giving our time. We don't feel like giving our talent. We don't feel like giving our treasure. We want to just do like this. We all feel that way sometimes. But gratitude. Jesus gave his time. He gave all of his abilities and he gave his blood, which was worth more than all of the money in the world. You can't even buy one soul with all the money in the world. Gratitude. We've been given, haven't we been given a lot of grace? Like I said, we sinned today and didn't know it. And yet God was still gracious. 
Number three, we give because it's required for the operation of the Lord's work. In the Old Testament, it was the temple and the priesthood. In the New Testament, it's church and it's missions and really reaching people with the gospel. Go into all the world. And so Paul, again, when the churches gave through the ministries to the, uh, to the early churches, then those churches gave to send Paul out. These things were all required. In the Old Testament, the temple, the priesthood, the New Testament, the church and missions. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill said this, and he said this in the 70s. He said, today Christians spend more money on dog food than missions. And that's sad but true. A lot of Americans spend, I can't remember, the, I used to know the number. It's, it's, it's got a B at the end, so I know it's a billion number, of amount on pet food. It's uh, less than 1% of church budgets actually go to missions, which is really sad. Thankfully, we have a much healthier uh, budget in this church that goes to missions, uh, but it's, uh, it's really, really um, indicting uh, that the very things God wants, remember, that it's not exclusive, but the primary, going back to week one, the primary are needful things, important things. Number four, compassion. Remember, Israel was required to give to the poor. We would desire. Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. No one beat the Good Samaritan, uh, Good Samaritan into. He had that compassionate heart, and he stopped, and he mended the man's wounds, and he put him in the hospital, and he paid the bill, and he came back to make sure everything was paid up. Compassion, the heart of God in giving. We want to give to those that are suffering. Uh, I'd love to see our church grow, and over the next several years, that we can help more people who are suffering. That when you know, some unsaved person, you know, we can meet a need that's, they say, wow, you guys are different. Everyone else asks us for money. You guys are helping. It's, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to see this ministry on the, on the you know, TV. Send your $10,000 check, and you're going to get this little plaque here. Then this beautiful little angel or whatever it is. Like, come on. Chuck Smith used to laugh at that stuff. He, he'd say, you know, if God really needed all that, we would see Moses doing that and Paul doing that, everybody else doing that. Number five, faith. That's what we've been talking about tonight. Stewardship involves faith. Learning to trust, keeping our eyes off the world. Learning to trust the Lord. Gideon had to learn to trust the Lord. And Gideon's mindset, 32,000 makes a lot more sense than 300. And mine too, wouldn't you? Lord, have we got a fighting chance here? Faith. Lord, if I give the way you want me in my time, my talent, my treasure, my whole life will be ruined. God says, no, you do what I say, it will be blessed. And that's the sixth one, blessing. God promises to bless obedience. Do we believe it? God promises to bless obedience. Now, next week, when we look at, um, we'll look at more uh, what the sanctified and satisfied lifestyle, and we'll look at some real practical things. So we had to set the foundation, what, what the money what finances is and isn't the Bible, and then what the Bible says about living a life of faith related to finances. Next week, we'll look at some very practical examples of how families and individuals, you know, how we can live and really get to a place where we really do have freedom because I believe God wants to free up many in the body of Christ that are in financial bondage, burdens, weighed down by worries, and that God actually would bless some people and, and really uh, some may be entrusted with quite a bit. Abraham was entrusted with a lot, wasn't he? They called him a prince because he he'd actually he had acquired more than some kings. But some people can be faithful with that. Some really can. Not many can. I know of a pastor up in uh, up in Ohio, a Christian businessman there, just observed all they were doing in the community. Came and said one day, said I'm going to write y'all a check for a million dollars because you're doing so much to win people to Christ and everything else. Now, uh, your average guy is not going to do that. But God will entrust some people. And God, I believe, wants to do you know, a work. And it's not always money. It's sometimes it's, uh, it's other things. You might, you know, God might, for some here, he might give you better health in your last 30 years than you've ever had in your last 20. Fanny Crosby, I tell the story sometimes, Fanny Crosby wrote him, she thought she was going to die. Her health was so bad, she started writing death hymns. She started praying. God reversed her health, and she actually had this second wind of all her health problems went away. 
Same happened with George Mueller. He lived by faith. He couldn't get rid of migraines and all these things. All of a sudden, he started just pressing, and Lord God took it away, and he went on and did things that no one had ever... I mean, people still write about all the things he had done. So the things that God can bless, it'll be different for each person. The problem we have is we put it in a form that we say, all right, I wrote this, I did this, so this is what I should expect coming back. God may do it completely different than that. Amen? And family members finally get saved. Well, is that worth it? No, I'd rather, us, uh, I'd rather have the Ferrari. Okay, that won't matter in heaven. So again, the way God can bless, we got to just think scripturally, not the way the world thinks. Amen?